This is one of those series that I hope and pray you'll not only take notes on, you'll listen to and take to heart, but if you have sons and daughters are not yet married or you have good friends are not yet married and one day they will be, I would strongly encourage you to keep this series and get this series and make sure you give it to those who one day will get married. And I'll kind of tell you why with a story. About, I don't know, several years ago, there was a young couple that came to see me, see me to talk about getting married. And uh, the young lady went to our church, and she professed to be a Christian, but, you know, the guy that she was dating didn't. So I, I shared the gospel with him, and uh, he explained to him how to relationship with God, and he politely listened to me share the gospel, and he politely declined. And he was, you know, just not interested. So uh, I recommended that they have some premarital counseling and then come back for another visit, which they did. So they come back for the second visit, and um, sits, they sit down, and he wants to set a date for the wedding. So I looked at him, and I said, well, now, tell me now, what have you decided to do about Jesus? What have you decided to do about receiving him as your Lord and Savior and trusting him? And he was, again, very polite, but let me know in no uncertain terms. I have no interest in becoming a Christian. I have no interest in trusting Christ. Uh, that's not what I want to do. I just want to get married, and I just want you to do the wedding. So I, I thanked him for his candor. I thanked him for his honesty. I said, man, I really appreciate you being up front. And then I looked at her. And I said, do you understand um, I can't do your wedding? And frankly, she couldn't and she didn't. And so um, we were kind of got into a little discussion. And so I said, let me, let me ask you a question. I said, would you marry this man, this young man, if he said to you ahead of time, I want you to know that if we have any children, I will not love them. I don't want anything to do with them. They will be your children. I don't want to be bothered with them. And you just need to understand that I will never, ever love any children that we have. I said, now, would you marry him? She said, well, of course not. I said, okay, so let me get this straight. But you are willing to marry a man who is saying to you, as of now, and unless something changes, I do not plan and I never will love the Jesus that you say you love. I don't want to have anything to do with this man that you said died for my sins. I don't want to have anything to do with the person that you are supposed to love more than me. I said, do you understand that's what you're saying? She didn't say anything and I said, so here's my last question. So do you think that your children are more important than Jesus? Never saw them again. Now, let me just stop, and I know where some of you are right, headed right now. You're thinking that was pretty harsh, narrow-minded, intolerant, unrealistic, get with it. This is the 21st century. And, and, and before you kind of jump to all of that conclusion, I just want to ask you to consider something. Just consider it for just a moment. I, I believe we're not just physical beings. And I believe we're not just emotional beings. I, I believe we're spiritual beings. I believe there's something deeper to every human being than just what you see on the outside and even what they say they may feel on the inside. And I happen to believe that the most important part of a marriage is not the physical, because you do learn the newness does wear off. Uh, guys, the makeup does come off. And ladies, the breath is not always sweet. 
So the physical wears off. And it's certainly not the emotional because we do sometimes lose that loving feeling. Now, I really believe the most important part of a marriage is the spiritual because the spiritual brings in God who is the glue that can hold any marriage together. You know, one of the reasons why people get divorced and one of the number one reasons they get today is because they either have what they call irreconcilable differences or they, they'll say, we're just incompatible. Now, whenever a believer in Jesus marries a non-believer, you already start out with irreconcilable differences. You already start out with complete spiritual incompatibility. Let me just stop right here. If you are married to an unbeliever, and there's some of you sitting here right now who are, I'm not, I don't want you to feel bad. I don't want you to feel guilty. You are married. God wants to bless that marriage. God wants to honor that marriage. No way am I trying to put anybody here on a guilt. My mother married my dad when he was not a believer, okay? So that's not where I'm going with this. So just hang with me. Christians are not immune to divorce either. If you're sitting there saying, well, I know two people who say they love God and they got divorced. I get it. However, Bradford Wilcox of the National Marriage Project launched a study on the importance of spiritual compatibility in a marriage. Here's what he discovered. He discovered that actively involved, committed believers in a church were 35% less likely to be divorced than people who either are not committed or have no religious affiliation. 35%. I'll take that any day of the week. So that's why we're in a series that we're calling Just the Three of Us. Because if you go all the way back to the very first marriage you read about in Scripture, you will find there weren't two people involved. There were three people involved. There was the husband, there was the wife, and there was the God that brought the two of them together. So from the very beginning, here's what God said. God said two's company and three's a marriage. Two's company, three's a marriage. So from the beginning, marriage was meant to be a trio and not a duet. So that leads us to the passage we're going to study today, and I owe you an apology and our creative team an apology. They put up their 2 Corinthians. It's not 2 Corinthians. If you go there, there's not a 14 through 18. It is 1 Corinthians, okay? So we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, if you want to look at that in your Bible or whatever you might be using. And by the way, uh, that's a really easy book to find. It's in the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This is a letter that Paul wrote to a man in, in a church in a city I visited many times, Corinth is is, is not too far outside of Athens. And whenever I perform a wedding, I want to make sure that I've done everything I can to ensure that that couple is ending their marriage right from the start. There's an old saying that we've all heard many times, and that is, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. It's not how you start, it's how you finish that counts. Well, when it comes to marriage, that's not totally true. Because when it comes to marriage, how you start is just as important as how you finish. As a matter of fact, how you start may very well determine whether or not you finish or whether or not you finish well. So as we study this passage together, I want you to keep one other thing in mind and then we're gonna kind of jump into this. There are only two classes of people on planet Earth the way God sees people. 
Now, we divide people up into all kinds of ways, rich and poor and black and white and Democrat and Republican and liberal and conservative and communist and socialist and capitalist. And, you know, we've got all these categories. But when God looks at planet Earth, there are only two classes of people, only two classes the Bible ever even talks about. There are believers and there are unbelievers. There are people who follow Jesus and there are people who do not follow Jesus. Jesus. Now, there are a lot of people who, by the way, would say that, you know, a couple's differing beliefs really shouldn't make any difference in marriage. I mean, that's kind of the thinking today. You know, it's not that big of a deal. And and let me just go ahead and say something else up front. Everybody in this room knows of marriages. I know of marriages where either two unbelievers got married or a believer married an unbeliever, and they've got great marriages. They've got solid marriages. They love each other. They are committed to each other. And and so I want to make sure you understand, I am not knocking those kind of marriages. As a matter of fact, I want to make sure that I'm not misunderstood. So I want you to listen very carefully to this next statement. You can have a good, happy, solid marriage, whether you are a believer or not. Now, if you heard that, would you raise your hand? Because I'm going to save emails and phone calls and texts. Okay, so whether you're a believer or not, You can have a rock-solid marriage, whether you're both unbelievers or one's an unbeliever. However, it is God's intent that every marriage be comprised of two people that will form a home on the foundation of Christ. God's ideal is this. God doesn't want your marriage just to be good. God wants your marriage to be godly. God doesn't just want your marriage to be happy. God wants your marriage to be holy. God doesn't want the two of you to have just a physical connection or a emotional connection. He wants you to have a spiritual connection. That was God's ideal and God's intent from the very beginning. Now, that brings us to this passage in 1 Corinthians. Again, I apologize where the Apostle Paul categorically states this. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, that's pretty plain. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, okay? Now, that verb, to be yoked together, is an agricultural term. And it referred to two animals that you would yoke together, that you would put into a yoke to plow a field. And Paul's actually referring back to a passage in the Old Testament where God said this. He said, do not plow with an ox and a donkey yoked together. Now, I'm not a farmer, and, 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 and I've never farmed, and, and thank God I've never farmed. And if I, I love farmers. I thank God for more farmers, but I'm, I'm just, I'm, I would go nuts if I was a farmer, okay? First of all, I'd starve to death. That would be my biggest problem. But I'm not a farmer, so I don't know much about farming. So I asked myself, okay, why, what, why did God say to the Israelites, why, why would God even care? Why would God even care? Why would God even go out of the way to say, by the way, do not yoke an ox and a donkey together. Don't plow them together. Well, because God knew what he was doing. Because an ox and a donkey are totally different. The ox is slow. The donkey goes fast. The ox is stronger. The donkey is weaker. The ox is patient. The donkey is impatient. And what Paul is saying right from the start is this. Here's what he's trying to say. He's saying, if you've never been married, he said, here's my advice to you. Get it right from the start. 
Marry someone that you are spiritually compatible with. As a matter of fact, Paul felt so strongly about this and Paul was so adamant about this that, that, that later on in, 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 in this letter in, uh, in Corinthians, he was talking about widows that might want to remarry, somebody that lost their husband and died, and they might want to remarry. And listen to what Paul said. He said, now, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, wishes but he must belong to the Lord. He says, if you're a widow or a widower, your husband dies or your wife dies, you are free to remarry. No problem, not at all. You're, that marriage is gone. When, the, when she died or he died, the marriage dissolved. However, you can marry anyone you want to as long as they're committed to the Lord, as long as they know the Lord. Why did he do that? Why does the scripture teach that? Because if you want your marriage to be everything it could be, and everything it should be, and what God wants it to be, it must be right from the start. So here's what that means for both partners. Here's what that means for two people who are thinking about or considering getting married. Okay, now listen again. I'm going right on Scripture. This is what Paul said. This is what Paul wrote. This was the advice that Paul gave. Okay, number one, we must be surrendered to the same Lord. If you want to be right from the start, we must be surrendered to the same Lord. Now, after Paul makes this opening statement about being unequally yoked, I know what Paul did. I'm so glad that Paul did it because I do the same thing. When I'm working on a very difficult message or a message I know is going to be a little bit controversial, I sit and I'll always sit and I'll say, okay, if I did not want to agree with what I'm saying, how would I object to it? What, what, what argument would I bring against it? Paul's doing exactly the same thing. He's anticipating objection after objection after objection. He, he's sitting there saying, oh, wait a minute. Why are you so adamant? I mean, this guy may not be a believer, but he's a great guy. She may not be a believer, but she's a wonderful young lady. I don't understand why you've got to be such a stickler that we've got to both know, know Jesus and we've got to both love Jesus. So he builds his case by doing a great thing, kind of uses the Socratic method. He builds his case by asking a series of questions. So notice the question he asked in verse 15. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? We'll get to that in a moment. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? Now, the name there for Belial is the only time it's ever used in the New Testament. It is an ancient name. Here's the good thing, good thing about that name. As far as I know, uh, I don't think that name's ever been used. I've never met anybody named Belial. I don't think you have, and I don't think you will, okay? That name's not in use anymore because the name Belial literally means Satan or it means devil. So what he's doing already, he is contrasting Jesus and Satan. He's contrasting, contrasting Christ and Belial. And here's what he's trying to get us to understand. There are actually two kingdoms in existence right now. There's the kingdom of this world, and there's the kingdom of God. There's what the scripture calls the kingdom of light, and there's what the scripture calls the kingdom of darkness. Now, here's what's true about everybody in this world. Everyone on this planet is a citizen of one of those two kingdoms. You're either a citizen of the kingdom of God, or you are a citizen of the kingdom of this world. And let me tell you what that means. 
That means you are subject to one of those two kings. You're either subject to the one who is the kingdom of this world, or you're subject to the one who is of the kingdom of God. Now, the question that Paul just asked is this, what harmony can ever come between those two? What harmony can there be between those two? Now, that word harmony is also a very interesting word. If you read it in the Greek language, you would know what that, where we get, what the word we get from that word because it sounds just like it. We get the word symphony from that word. He says, what symphony can you have if you've got one person who's a believer and one person who is not? It literally means to agree with. And here's what Paul is saying. Paul is saying, from the get-go, when a believer and an unbeliever marry, you've already got this fundamental disagreement over who's going to be king in that marriage. You've already got a fundamental disagreement over which kingdom they're going to live in. You don't have symphony. There is not harmony. Now, there's nothing more beautiful, if you've ever been to one I have, there's nothing more beautiful than listening to a great symphony. And you've got to admit, there's something majestic when you go to a symphony and, and, and you look up on the stage and you've got all these different players and all these different instruments. And, and yet when they begin to play together, what are they doing? They're reading from the same score. They're obeying the same leader. They're playing the same tune. They're doing it to the same beat. Now think about the chaos you would have if you went to a symphony and every instrumentalist just decided they were gonna play in their own tune, in their own way, at their own pace, to their own beat, in their own key. I mean, you just have chaos. And what Paul is saying is, speaking spiritually, when an unbeliever marries a believer, this is what will always be true. They will not be singing the same song they will not be singing in the same key. They'll not be singing at the, in the same pace. They'll not be singing in the same way. See, from the beginning, God said, men and women, the man and the woman, the husband and wife are supposed to be one. But already in the most important area of this whole thing, the spiritual area, you won't have one. You'll have two. There won't be a spiritual oneness. There cannot be. When I, uh, <clears throat> I, I, I may have told you this story, forgive me if I have, or maybe you've, maybe you've forgotten it, I hope. But when um, I took Teresa out on our first date, our very first date, I was uh, a student pastor in a church here in Atlanta, and I'd taken a group of high schoolers up to this college up in North Georgia. And uh, so I had met her actually the week before, and, and we'd come for, at a retreat and come back for a camp. And uh, so I was leading a Bible study that night, and so I asked her, could, you know, if she'd like to go out and get an ice cream, you know, after the Bible study. And, uh, you know, she said, sure, I'd like to do that. So I had my Bible study, and then I went to her dorm, and I picked her up, and uh, I was waiting on her, because you couldn't even go back then, you couldn't even go into a dorm. Things have changed today, couldn't even go into the dorm. So I'm sitting out in the car, and I'm waiting on her, and she comes in, I get around, and I open the door for her, and she gets in. And I said, I hope you don't mind if, uh, you know, I, I brought some friends with me. Well, she looked around the back seat and there wasn't anybody there. And she said, well, where are your friends? I'd put a Bible between us and I said, meet Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. <laughs> so I'm not, I know it's corny, but that's what I did. So, uh, but you know, you date your way, I'll date mine. So anyway, so we, you know, we, we, we went to this little place to get ice cream. And here's the funny part. We never got the ice cream. Because I'm gonna be honest, I gave her an examination that would be worthy of a PhD student in seminary. 
I mean, I asked her about, I mean, the, the very first question I asked her, guess what it was? Do you have a personal relationship with Christ? Do, do you know the Jesus that I know? I mean, I, I'm just telling you, the first thing, you know, I wanted to know. I wanted to hear her testimony. I wanted to know if she knew the Lord because for me, and it was for every person I dated, the number one country I dated, criteria I had before I dated anybody was, all right, do you know the Jesus that I know? Do you love the Jesus that I love? Now you say, well, why did you do that on every date? Because as you well know, every date is a potential mate. All right, say amen to that. It is. Every date is a potential mate. When I proposed to Teresa, and this is a true story, you know, I proposed to her on the second date. I proposed to my wife. She walked in. She was laughing when I proposed. Okay, she was laughing. She walked into her mother's, three o'clock in the morning, she walked into her mother's house. She woke her mother up. She said, you're not going to believe this. She said, this young man just asked me to marry him. She said, he's going to be a preacher. I will never marry a preacher ever. Her mother said, never say never. <laughs> Every date is a potential mate. And I wanted to be right from the start. I, I read a story years ago. I love this story. There was a man that was proposing to a young lady. They, they'd been dating for a long time. They both loved Jesus. They both were surrendered to Jesus. And the man got down on his knees and he took his soon-to-be fiance and bride by the hands. And he looked up to her and this is the way he proposed. I love this. You ready? He looked up at her and he said, would you be willing to take second place in my life? Would you be willing to take second place in my life? He wanted her to know, you won't be first in my life. Jesus will be first in my life. And I want you to know, I want Jesus to be first in your life. Which, by the way, leads me to say this. If you want to marry the right person, become the right person to marry. If you want to marry the right person, I, I, man, I want you to pray I'll marry the right person. Well, how about starting with yourself? Be the right person before you try to marry the right person. And the way to begin right is to be right with God and then find someone else who is right with God. Paul said, number one, we must be surrendered to the same Lord. Then he says, we must be energized with the same life. We must be energized with the same life. Now, listen to this question that Paul asked immediately. He says, okay, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. Now, he's building his case. Don't do it. Please, if you're a believer, do not marry an unbeliever. Here's why. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? War, what fellowship can light have with darkness? Now, let me give you, tell you what Paul is talking about, and you really learn this from Jesus because he talked about it all the time. Everybody knows what an x-ray machine is. I want you to imagine that there was such a machine as a spiritual x-ray machine, not a physical x-ray machine. I want you to imagine there was such a thing as a spiritual x-ray machine, okay? If you put everybody on planet Earth under a spiritual x-ray machine to see what was inside that person, you would see one of two things you would either see light or you would see darkness. You would either see light or you would see darkness. Now, you, let me explain why. When you and I were born, we were not born in spiritual light. We were born in spiritual darkness, all of us. As a matter of fact, John, one of Jesus' disciples, said this about Jesus. He said, the true light, that is Jesus, the true light that gives light to everyone 
So you don't have light without Jesus. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. See, this is what happened. My brother reminded me uh, yesterday, sent me a little note, it's so sweet. Uh, he sent me a note that uh, on this day, back when we were both kids, on this day we were baptized together. Long time ago, we were baptized together uh, as kids. And I, you know, had forgotten that. Well, what happens is this: when you give your life to Jesus, a spiritual light comes on. You, you literally see the light. You go from darkness to light. You go from death to life. See, when you say, you know, yeah, I believe that Jesus died for the world. I, I believe that. Well, you're still in the dark. But when you say, I don't only believe Jesus died for the world. I believe Jesus died for me and I need him to be my savior and I'm trusting him as my savior. Then the light comes on. You go from darkness to light. You go from death to light. That's why Jesus went on to say about himself in John 8, 12. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness. Let me just stop right there. If you're not following Jesus, you're walking in the dark. You may not realize you're walking in the dark, but spiritually, you're in the dark. He says, whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So here's what Paul is saying. When an unbeliever marries a believer, here's what you've got. You've got one person walking in light. You've got one person walking in darkness. You've got one person that lives in the light. You've got one person that lives in darkness. You've got one person that can see because they're in the light. You've got another person that can't see because they're in the darkness. And here's what that simply means. All Paul is saying is there will always be that spiritual disconnect. It will never, ever be like this. It will be like that. Look, here's a good illustration. Every child that I've ever known is afraid of the dark. You know, we all at one time were afraid of the dark. But, but there comes this day, there comes a day, and it comes at different times, different ages, different kids, that the child discovers a little magic box on the wall called a light switch. And a revelation takes place. When you finally understand what that little box is for, and you walk over there as a child, and you flip that switch, all of a sudden, without anybody telling you, you realize something. Hey, light and dark aren't connected. There are two different worlds. There's the dark world. There is the light world. So when a believer marries an unbeliever, they may be living in the same house, but spiritually speaking, they are living in two different worlds. They're on two separate spiritual tracks. They're going in two separate different spiritual directions. And furthermore, here's the problem. The relationship is limited to the temporal and somewhat the external. Now, here, here, let me describe this kind of marriage. You've got a believer married to an unbeliever. Or here's, here's, here's what you have. They've got a great marriage. They love each other. They enjoy family ties. They love their children. They enjoy the same friends. But spiritually and ultimately, eternally, they live in two different worlds. They're energized by two different lives. And that's why Paul, now Paul's really tightening the screws here. That's why Paul goes on to ask now this question. He says, what agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Now, why does Paul bring up the temple? Because even though he's talking to Gentiles, by the, by, for the most part, not just Jews, 
everybody kind of got the idea, everybody knew that, that in the Old Testament, the temple was a symbol of where God lived. That's where God took residence, right? But in the New Testament, we're told believers are temples of the Holy Spirit. What a believer, here's what a believer is, ready? A believer is simply someone that Jesus lives in. When Jesus lives in you, the light of the world, then you've got light living in you. It's just that simple. That's what Paul is talking about. He does not live in an unbeliever. So here's the, here's the situation. Physically, their life is totally the same. They both eat, they both drink, they, they breathe. Their bodies function the same way. They enjoy physical intimacy. Emotionally, they may enjoy the same thing. They may have the same interest, but spiritually, they are totally they are completely, they are unequivocally different. Now, here's the point. Can they be content in their marriage? Sure. Can they be committed to their marriage? No, a lot of them. Can they be confirmed in their marriage? No question. But they cannot and never will be complete in their marriage. There will always be a part of the puzzle that's missing. That's why we've got to be surrendered to the same Lord, and that's why we've got to be energized by the same life. Now, that leads to the third thing that helps a marriage to be right from the start. We'll wrap this up, all right? We must be surrendered to the same Lord, got it? We must be energized by the same life, got it? But then here's the last thing. We must be motivated by the same love. We gotta be motivated by the same love. Now, listen to this question again that Paul asked one more time. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Now, the word there for uh, have in common, three words in the English language, it's literally one word in the Greek, it simply means partnership. What, what partnership? How, how can righteousness and wickedness have a partnership? By the way, that word only appears here in all of the New Testament. And what Paul is making plain is, he says, look, righteousness cannot have a partnership or a real fellowship with wickedness. Now, let me just tell you, the root word for wickedness literally means lawlessness. That's what wickedness is. It's just we've all done it. We've all broken the law, right? Which is the root of the biggest problem that you have between a believer and an unbeliever. Let me explain what Paul is saying because it's really a lot deeper than you read just on the surface. The bottom line of all sinfulness and all wickedness and all righteousness is breaking God's law, all right? So of all the law and of all the commandments, some of you remember this because Jesus told us, what is the greatest commandment? Somebody tell me, what is it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Jesus said that is the greatest commandment. He was asked a question, and so he said, matter of fact, he was asked by a lawyer, so what is the greatest commandment? Jesus said, okay. He said, teach you what's the greatest commandment of the law. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. Now, this is why this is such a big deal. Just as your relationship with God begins with you really beginning to love God, we all know that's the way a marriage ought to begin. I mean, nobody questions that, right? We all acknowledge we should only marry somebody we truly love. I mean, I don't think anybody would argue with that. If you don't love them, you shouldn't marry them, but you should marry, you know, you do marry them if you truly do love them. But here's what I've learned, and I've had it, I've learned it in my own marriage. The best person 
you will ever marry is a person who loves Jesus first and foremost. The best person you'll ever marry is a person who loves Jesus first and foremost. You know what I have found? When I love Jesus the most, I love Teresa the best. I'm at my best as a husband when I'm closest to Jesus. When I'm hitting on all eight cylinders with Jesus, when I'm really sold out to Jesus, when I'm really walking with Jesus, she can tell it. That's when I'm at my best as a husband. You know, when the children of Israel were about to enter into the promised land, Moses gave these specific instructions concerning the unbelieving people they would encounter. Before they went to the promised land, he said, look, you're not going to a land filled with Baptists and Methodists and Lutherans and Episcopalians and Presbyterians. You're going into a land filled with people they don't know their left hand from their right hand. They don't know God from wheat or barley or olive oil. They are totally pagan. And here's what he said to them. Do not intermarry with them. Right, stop, time out. Just, just, coffee. had nothing to do with the color of their skin. Nothing. Not even on the radar screen. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. He said, don't do the wedding. Don't have the wedding. Don't participate in the wedding. Don't do it. Far, they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. Now, let me tell you why God said that. Because when a believer marries an unbeliever, this is just fact, it's just true. When a believer marries an unbeliever, the believer is also marrying the unbeliever's belief. Doesn't mean you accept it but you're always marrying the unbeliever's belief. And so here's the problem. There will always be the possibility that the believer doesn't pull the unbeliever up. The unbeliever will drag the believer down. So he said, just don't do it. My mom, and I, listen, I'm so grateful that my mom married my dad or I wouldn't be here, okay? So I'm, 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 I'm glad that worked out. My mom used to tell me before she passed, she said, you know, she said, I disobeyed God when I married your dad. She was honest about it. She said, your dad was not a believer. I knew he wasn't a believer, but I loved your dad, and I married him. And she said, you know, I, I, I realize looking back, she says, I know that I disobeyed God, but you know, God works all things out together for the good, and God can do that, okay? But, but in this particular case, and thank God for this, my dad did not bring my mom down. My mom brought my dad up. But what God said was, but it doesn't always work that way. That's why you want to be right from the start. That's why you want to even bring this into the equation. I, I read a story the other day. There was a young man that met a young lady at a Chicago train station. And I mean, he was just captivated. She was a, she was a knockout. And he was just captivated by her beauty and her personality. So when, when the, they announced the train was ready for boarding, he jumped up and he said to her, he said, uh, look, I don't mean to be too forward and I, I don't, certainly don't mean to be too pushy, but would it be okay if I sit next to you on the train? She said, I'm, I'm sorry. She said, um, you can't do that. Oh, boy, he's just, I mean, the air just came out of the balloon. He was so deflated. And he said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I, you're, you're, you're traveling with someone else. And she said, well, no. He said, okay, so um, you're, you're married to someone else? She says, no, I'm not married. He said, so you're dating someone else? She said, no, I'm, I'm not dating anybody else. He said, well, why can't I sit next to you? <laughs> she said, because you're going to New York and I'm going to Los Angeles. <laughs> now, 
When a believer marries an unbeliever, spiritually speaking, one will always be going to New York and one will always be going to Los Angeles. And never the twain shall meet. They will never have the complete connection that God intended for them to have. So I, I want to close, because this has been a hard message, and I get it. And when you preach on marriage, if you preach truth in marriage, it's not easy, not in this day and age. And so I want you to understand, and, and, and I thought about, Lord, how do I, I don't want to dig a hole and not let people think that they can't get out of it. So let, let me, I want to give you some advice, and I want to give you some encouragement, okay? If you're not married, if you're not married, I want to strongly advise you and counsel you to only date believers. Because I want to repeat, every date is a potential mate. And I would encourage you to even in your dating life, do it right from the start. I encourage you to marry only a believer, okay? But there's more to it, and I get it. Because let's say you say, okay, I'm going to take your advice, and I'm only going to marry a believer. So you meet a person, and he or she says she's a believer. You say you're a believer. You say, okay, we're both believers. Okay, then would you please do this once you marry? After you marry, will you live what you believe? After you marry, live what you believe. So if you're not already married, I'm just saying, look, be all ears. Have your antenna up, have your radar on, be looking for a believer. When you look at someone and you're sizing them up, don't first survey their looks or their personality. First thing you ought to do, look at their heart because that's what God looks at. First thing God ever looks at, God says, I don't look on the outward appearance, I look at the heart. Now, you're already married to an unbeliever. And I know that. I see some of you out there. I get it. I understand. Here's what I want you to understand. Your marriage is a God marriage now. God wants you to be married. That's the person that in the sovereign will of God you married, and God wants that marriage to flourish, and God wants to bless that marriage. And there's always hope for your spouse. So here's what I would say to you. You say, well, I'm married to an unbeliever. What do I do? You love your spouse. You pray for your spouse. Don't nag your spouse. Nobody ever gets nagged into the kingdom. I mean, I'm just telling you, they don't. You love your spouse. You pray for your spouse. You let that spouse see Jesus in you. You let that spouse see the difference that Jesus makes in your life. And if you are an unbeliever, you're here today, you're not a believer, and you're married to a believer, here's what I want you to know. I want you to know that Jesus loves you more than your spouse. Jesus loves you more than your children. There's nobody on this planet that loves you more than Jesus. And anytime you want to, here's the great thing about becoming a Christian. Anytime you want to, you can flip the switch. And you can go from darkness to light. But know this, know this. Whatever marriage you may be in right now, believer, believer, unbeliever, 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 believer, whatever marriage you're in right now, the Jesus that died on the cross and came back from the dead that we might be saved and live in him can bring light and love and harmony and joy to any marriage, any time, any place. Let's pray together. With his bowed, with eyes closed.